Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 407. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 407 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer, Miriam Caduce, who's worked with Spelling, Tori Emoy, Sad13, Tunyards, and Zelma Stone, to name a few. And Miriam also writes, records, and produces music for her solo project, Space Moth, and composes music for film on top of all of that. So, we have a great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing that. So, Miriam Caduce, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the complexities of selling gear. All right, apologies in advance. I realize I've done this now in a couple shows where I've recorded the rants late at night, where the whole household is asleep. So my intention is not to give you the late night DJ Matt voice. It's essentially meant to not wake everybody in the house up. So appreciate your patience while I give you the late night DJ voice unintentionally. All right. So on past shows, I've talked extensively about selling gear, you know, kind of prompting you all to sell the gear you're not using and either, you know, bank the money or turn it into gear that you will use and case in point you know i sold a bunch of gear to pay for my atmos setup and that was that was a successful thing for me uh but you know selling gear is not always smooth it's it's not always free of entanglements or emotions uh so let's talk about that a little bit emotions you know what do i mean by that well you know, sometimes it's hard to let go of a piece of gear, especially if you've had it for a, a period of time and you've used it and maybe it's been in use on a project that is important to you. And you think, oh man, I associate this selling of this piece of gear with selling of a part of my history with someone or a group or a project, whatever. And sometimes it's hard to let go. Uh, I must admit, you know, I sold my Grace 905 successfully um but you know it actually was hard to let go of it because it's it's a great piece of gear and i thought well, what if i want to use this down the line in another setup and of course that is kind of the trap that i always you know try to talk myself out of it's like well okay you're not using it now and really when are you going to be using it again seriously and i i have to go through those conversations with myself but you know i've had it for a while uh, I got a pretty good deal on it used and it's, you know, it's gotten me through a lot of different projects. Now I have something to replace it, the Grace M908. So I'm good in that department, but that leads me to my next thing. Not all transactions, you know, whether they're on reverb or eBay go smoothly. And that's, you know, once you disconnect from the gear emotionally, if you have any emotional attachment to it, um, then there's the act of selling it and selling it on the common services can be a smooth ride or it can be you know a true nightmare honestly and i'm sure some of you have some nightmare stories that's kind of rare honestly it's you know not every day that you know we're all struggling to sell stuff and get you know scammed or uh, have a bad experience on those services it's i think it's for the most part pretty rare at least it has been for me i've had a couple scares nothing too crazy then there's just the whole you know getting down to it you know you sell it and then once it sells you're like oh great now i gotta pack this thing up and and then probably the number one thing i have screwed up on and i'm sure many of you have too is underestimating the shipping on selling this stuff right you know you look at it and you're like oh okay that's probably gonna cost around you know x amount of dollars and then i can't tell you the number of times i've showed up to the ups store with the you know with the the thing whatever it is i'm selling in the box you know packed up ready to go and i'm all prepared and then they hit me with the shipping charge and it's just like astronomical 
you know, because, you know, hell, it costs money to ship stuff and run a big company like UPS or FedEx. And, you know, I'm glad we have them, but yeah, shit costs money, right? So, uh, you know, prepare yourself for that when you list your stuff. Also, keep in mind, too, if you take something down to a UPS store to have them pack it, it can be a little pricey sometimes because remember they're making money on the packing materials friends so you got to factor that in too but if you can keep original boxes and make sure things are you know rock solid in those boxes don't do a, a half-assed job of packing you'll be cool and you can save money on on the packing materials now here's a tip for you for my older audience because i'm in this category so Remember, if you go into a UPS store, you can get 15% off the whole thing, I think, including the packing materials. If you have, I think it's either, uh, you can have a AAA card and or a uh, AARP card. Yeah, <laughs> I'm showing my age, aren't I? So keep that in mind. When you go in to ship something, you know, ask if they take AAA or AARP. And, and this is in the United States. I don't know how it works in the rest of the world, but... That's how it works here. And then of course, you know, there's always selling to friends and that really kind of takes the edge off of all of it. Really the emotional part of it, uh, the negotiation part of it, uh, at least it has been for me, you know, maybe you've got tougher friends who like to do a little harder negotiation, but in my experience, buying and selling with friends is so much easier because then you don't have to worry about, you know, all the crap that you do with eBay and reverb. You don't have to worry about shipping, uh, the worries of what's going to happen in shipping. Is it going to show up damaged? Is something weird going to happen along the way? All the hassles that come with that experience in general, because, you know, you hand it to a friend, you get your money or you make payment arrangements or whatever. And then if something goes wrong, it's fairly easy to remedy because you can get on the phone and go, oh, what's what's wrong? Oh, okay. The screw's loose on the XLR connector or whatever it is. You know, those things can be easily worked out. Uh, but when you're dealing with strangers, you know, it, it can be a different conversation. It's a little bit different story. And then, of course, there's the fact that you may have regrets about selling that gear to whoever you're selling it to. That's another part of this whole business. It's like, oh, man, I sold that and now I got this gig and I need that. Now, if you sell to a friend, you know, sometimes you can just borrow it or rent it from them. You know, you sell something that you didn't think was going to get put to use, then all of a sudden you need it all the time. That's a drag. Totally get that. And, um, you know, that's why when I try to sell something, I really try to think it through and think, okay, am I going to be using this in the next five years or year or two years? And what would it cost me to rent? What would it cost me to buy again? Oh, it's like a one-off item or a rare item. Maybe I shouldn't sell it definitely thoughts that one must consider when selling you know you got to think it through and i must admit you know there's pieces of gear that i've considered selling and i've just honestly gotten a little lazy about it and just kind of said well you know i'll deal with that later and then surprisingly in some cases i've had items you know get put to use you know that i thought i was going to sell and i think to myself oh well i'm glad i didn't sell that because here I am using it and here I am making money on it. And that was unexpected. But at the end of the day, remember, if it's something that you really can part with, it's not part of your workflow anymore, you're not making any money from it, uh, you're not lending it to a friend, maybe it's time to part with it. And when you go through all the checklist of, am I gonna use this in the next few years? Who should I sell it to? Who can I sell it local? Okay, I'm gonna sell it on Reverb or eBay. What do I need to be concerned with there? You know, go through the checklist of all the stuff I've mentioned and make sure that you're not finding yourself in a position where you're frustrated with the process. The best feeling in the world I get is when I sell a piece of gear and I feel like a weight is lifted off my shoulders. It's something I don't have to think about anymore, store, insure, or just concern myself with in the least. It's the greatest feeling in the world. But also, the worst feeling is regret. So think your sales through. And if you think you need something, you know, obviously hold on to it and try not to sell out of desperation either, because you want to make sure that the sale is going to benefit you in some way. So if there's another way around a problem, like a short-term cash flow problem, see if you can think about another idea 
instead of selling gear because that's when we sell low and we lose money on stuff. I know so many complications when selling, so many things to think about. And here I've just added to your list. So apologies, but you know, just want to make sure that everybody's kind of running all these ideas through their head when they're dealing with stuff. I know it's complicated and it doesn't have to be, but food for thought. And that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Miriam Caduce here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to have you. I know your husband, Bo Sorensen, he was on episode 233 many years ago. And when I found out that the two of you were married, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I get to have both husband and wife on the show. I think very fondly of him. Great guy. And I'm really anxious to learn about you because you come at this from not only producer, engineer, audio side, but you're also an artist underneath the name Space Moth, if I'm correct. That's right. Excellent. For the audience, I'll include all the links that you can imagine in the show notes so you can click on them and find out all there is to know about Miriam. So we'll we'll jump in. First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area in a small town called Union City, right between San Francisco and San Jose in a really suburb little city. Mm -hmm. I've been living in the Bay Area my entire life, aside from a year where I went to Boston and went to Berkeley College of Music and then dropped out. (laughs) And we'll we'll get to that because I definitely want to talk about that. Let's talk about your parents for a sec. Your parents have an interesting story because they came from Afghanistan to the United States and they left during the Soviet invasion. Yes. So both my parents were born in Afghanistan and my dad and my mom both worked as teachers. And my dad would teach Farsi to, well, there would be a lot of diplomats or people traveling in Afghanistan at the time. And he would teach them private lessons. Mm. And a couple that he was teaching, he started to become very close with who were from Berkeley, California. My dad always had this dream of moving to the U.S. and exploring education there, trying to build a life there, and they had offered to sponsor him to come to the U.S. At this time, my dad had and my mom had just gotten married, and I think my sister was just born. And so this couple were able to sponsor just him at the time and, you know, talk to my mom and She was like, you know, it sounds like a great idea. You can go explore out there maybe for like six months to a year, see what's out there. And then if it feels worth it, then we'll figure out how we can all be there together. And so my dad went to Berkeley, stayed with this couple. And then just months later, after he was trying to explore, I think he started to enroll into classes into community college and kind of like vocational schools to see what he was interested in. That's when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And so he quickly switched course and was like, well, now I have to figure out how to get my wife and my daughter out of there. And so he just immediately started working. He got a job at a very well-known Bay Area institution that isn't around anymore called Doggy Diner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he worked there. He worked at factories. He was working like two or three jobs at a time just to save money. And also, this is the late 70s. So to connect with people at the time, you're sending letters and, you know, there you can't text someone to send a picture or connect with them. And so it was really just like letters and pictures that was keeping them together at the time. And my dad, I think, had finished a shift at work one day and went to his apartment. He had a roommate and his roommate had left a note that my mom and my sister had gotten a ticket and they will be arriving at SFO today. This was after a year of trying to figure out how to finally get them to the U.S. And then once they all got together, my sister is maybe at this point a year and a half or two years old. So he hasn't seen her since then. Oh, wow. 
And from there, I mean, my parents just worked really hard in very blue collar, low wage, minimum wage jobs. My mom worked as a housekeeper. She was working at a factory for like television and telephone repair. Like she learned how to solder. And my dad was also working in factories, working in restaurants. And after years and years of saving money, they eventually invested in businesses over time. They were able to partner up with some friends and open up. Their first business was a liquor store. And then, you know, after (laughs) a couple of years, that didn't really work out so well. Then they bought a grocery store. And that grocery store was in Avenal, California, which is a really small town in the middle of the Bay Area in Los Angeles off of Highway 5 really close to Fresno. Mm. And I was born in Fresno. So while my parents were running that grocery store, towards the end of it was when I was born. Then just a couple of years later, they moved back to the Bay Area and then started a business. They opened up their own restaurant called Olympic Burgers. (laughs) Olympic Burgers is where I spent a lot of my childhood because at the time I was probably five or six years old and I hated preschool. <laughs> they tried to put me in preschool and I was like one of those kids who would just be like by the window, like like with my hands against the glass, like crying <laughs> as my parents drove away. And, uh, and they just like could not take it. And especially like daycare for them was expensive, you know? Yeah. And they're like, well, if she's not enjoying it, And she's just crying every day. Like, we might as well just bring her to the diner. And that's what they did. They brought me to the restaurant. I mean, legally, they probably weren't supposed to do that. But, you know, (laughs) I would sit in the back office every single day. And eventually, when I did go to kindergarten and elementary school, I would spend after school there as well. And my brother and sister, who are a bit older than me, They would work at the restaurant as well. My sister and my brother would work the cash register or the drive-thru. It was a family-run business, and I was too young to work at the time. One job they would give me to keep me busy when I was starting to just, like, get really bored was they would let me, like, stack the cheese crisscross style so it was, Uh like, easy for them to, like, put on a hamburger. Other than that, when I would get really, really bored, the restaurant always had soft rock radio like all the time just rotating throughout the day and it was like the same 40 songs that would repeat every single day and I just kept hearing those songs and I was pretty shy as a kid like really really shy like the like where if any adult ever tried to talk to me I'd just like run away or like hide (laughs) but something kind of like whenever I would hear music I would just like could not control myself like I would just sing along really loud and like really annoyingly. And one thing that my parents still remember, and I remember I had this day where like, I really had this urge to just, I don't know, like I think I had been watching music videos on TV, seeing all these different musicians and performers that I loved performing. And I like got on the countertop of the restaurant. I just started like singing really loud in front of in front of a restaurant full of people. And um, I'll say that's kind of one of my early childhood memories. Of, I love music. I just want to sing. I just want to be connected to it, and also made me feel like I could be myself. I didn't have to be shy. I could just express myself how I wanted to. So that's a little bit of early on growing up in the Bay Area and connections to music. Did your parents teach you Farsi? Yes. So they were they were really strict about all of us speaking Farsi in the house. And Farsi was actually the first language that I learned how to speak. Part of why I didn't like going to preschool was that my English was not very good. And I I was not able to communicate as well with the other kids or with the other teachers. But over time, I understand why my parents were so strict. They kind of knew once I would go to school, I would start learning how to speak English and I would only speak English. And that did happen where I would want to speak English at home. And eventually they were like, all right, fine. Like, she's not going to listen to us. (laughs) And, you know, my my brother and sister kind of did the same, but 
I was the third child, so they were like a little bit more lenient with me and they were like a little more strict with my brother and sister. But with that being said, I still spoke Farsi with my family as a kid and, and still do. So I'm really thankful that they pushed that on me as a kid, even though when you're young, you're kind of annoyed. You're like, oh, like, why can't I just speak in English? At that point, when I was younger, it felt like I'm more familiar with this language now. This is easier for me to speak. So, yeah, but I really love that I still have that because I know a lot of people my age who never learned the language that their parents grew up with. Yeah. Where did you take, I mean, singing on the counter is one thing, but do you remember the time that you actually acted on your impulses and started to seriously pursue music? And I assume music came before recording and producing. Yes. So I think I was maybe around 11 or 12 where I wanted to learn how to play an instrument. And that was my first step of wanting to pursue music. My parents were a little bit apprehensive. In my culture, women weren't usually encouraged to play music, and it was not culturally accepted. But they spoke to some of their family friends with kids who were just starting to learn how to play music. One of my cousins, Wally, he had gotten into playing guitar and he had become really good at it. And so it was like, okay, well, some people in our family are learning how to play music. They might not necessarily be women, but it's okay. At least like there are some people within our culture who are playing. It was like one thing if you wanted to play a traditional Afghan instrument, but like kind of more on the Western side, that was sort of like outside of what my family was used to. So wanting to learn how to play guitar was kind of like, okay, here I am. I'm going to ask my parents if they're going to let me play guitar. I'm like this 11 or 12 year old (laughs) kid. And it took some convincing and they eventually got there. And over the years of learning how to play guitar. They helped me pay for some of my lessons when they could. And my mom bought me a cassette recorder from the grocery store where I I recorded lots of distorted recordings of myself. (laughs) And, And eventually the years of learning how to play guitar led me to writing my own songs. And I think the point in which I wanted to pursue music as a career It honestly was a dream of mine, I'd say as young as that age, but it felt like a dream. Like, I don't know, this just seems like fantasy. Mm -hmm. How does anyone do something like that? How does anyone become a musician? How do they do that? And also my parents very much wanted all of my siblings to kind of follow a more traditional path of becoming a pharmacist or becoming a doctor or just something that would make us money because they had worked so hard to make money early on living in America and also in Afghanistan as well. They just wanted stability. So they were really nervous when I was in high school and wanting to pursue music as a career and like looking at music schools to apply to. They were just kind of like, no way, that's not happening. You can keep music as a hobby, but Music as a career is just not an option. And so that was a little bit hard, especially because my sister at the time was in pharmacy school or maybe had just become a pharmacist at the time. And then my brother had just graduated from UC Berkeley and he was getting his MBA at USC. So for my family, those were like huge accomplishments that they did to have a first generation daughter or son who gets their college degree in becoming a doctor or in business is huge for them. But the path of a career that was creative was just completely outside of anything in my family or anything that my family had experienced. That's interesting. You know, it's not uncommon, I think, in the U.S. for families to want their kids to become doctors and lawyers and pharmacists and and those type things and maybe not be too familiar with music. But I think your parents coming from Afghanistan just have no point of reference of Western music and how that could be a potential because they didn't necessarily grow up embracing that. Is that Would that be accurate to say? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, 
I'd say that the the time frame that my parents grew up in Afghanistan was kind of a more progressive time. Mm. For example, my mom was like, at the time, women weren't really wearing scarves on their heads when they went out. Like we would wear dresses and, you know, a lot of people were kind of dressed in Western clothing, I'd say in the city, like in Kabul. And there was a progressiveness at the time, but things really shifted right around the time when they moved. But yes, at the same time, they didn't have as much connection with with Western music. However, Western music did influence Afghan music a lot at the time as well. For example, there's a really famous Afghan musician. His name is Ahmad Zayed. And he, you could tell when you listen to his music and you see his style, there's a lot of Beatles influence. It's like Afghan music, but in the frame of a pop song, but with lots of delayed drums. And <laughs> it's really cool. It's amazing. I love, I love listening to his songs. And my mom and dad talk about that time frame as well, where the 70s, the haircuts that men had, they would call them Beatles haircuts. Mm. <laughs> They're like, yeah, their hair, their hair was like the Beatles. And it's true. You see photos of of men at that time kind of having that style. So there was some connection to Western culture, but at the same time, when it came to music, it always felt like it was more the negatives came with it, like drugs, you mm. know? And I think they just saw all of the, oh, our, our innocent young daughter, <laughs> you know, is gonna get into rock music. And all these things went through their mind at the time <laughs> um, that made them really nervous about it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So did you have any professional music experiences before, because you mentioned Berklee School of Music, did that come before any kind of professional appearances as a musician on stage, or did you play in bands before that in high school? What was the, the kind of timeline of that? So my experiences of performing before going to school, I didn't have a ton of experience. I performed at talent shows or mm -hmm. I didn't play in any bands in high school or when I was a kid, but I always worked on music by myself. It was just definitely like me in my bedroom playing guitar, writing songs. And when it came to the point of wanting to become a professional musician, I think more of that happened around the time frame when I went to Berklee College of Music. That's when I started my project Doei, which was the first solo project that I had started. And with that project, those are my first experiences in the studio, recording an album. And through those songs, I also performed in the Bay Area. I went on tour. So that all happened within the time frame of going to college as well. And you said that you, you bowed out of Berkeley. Is that right? 
I did after a year. So within that year of going to school was when I had started DOI and I had just moved away from the Bay Area, but then I was getting asked to play shows at venues that I had always admired as a kid growing up in the Bay Area, like Bottom of the Hill. Yeah. When I was 16, I'd go with my friends and it would be an all ages show and I'd watch a concert and just be like so inspired. And so that was really huge for me being in college and then being asked to play, even though, you know, it's a small venue. But for me, that was a really big deal as a kid to get asked to play there. And so I started to find myself kind of being pushed and pulled between being in school, but also wanting to make my own music and wanting to perform more. So after a year of being there, I was like, why don't I just take a semester off? I'll come back to the Bay Area. I subleased my apartment and I was like, yeah, let me just see if I can figure something out here. And within that time frame, I performed more. I had my first experience, sorry, more experiences recording. Around that time was when I recorded a tiny telephone for the first time. And it was (laughs) with John Vanderslice, (laughs) (laughs) who is a big part of my career. And also I started to I got asked from my vocal coach who I had been going to as a kid for years. She was like, I have a bunch of students that I don't have any capacity for. If you want work in music, you're welcome to come teach at my studio. I'll teach you some basics. You've been taking lessons here forever. You're a great singer. I feel like you could totally do it. And I was like, wow, amazing. I just dropped out of Berkeley. Here's my chance to make some money in music. And so at the time I started teaching at her studio, which was kind of like my first step into being able to make money as a musician. Mm. And I think a lot of musicians find themselves in the spot of teaching a lot. And when it comes to teaching voice lessons or guitar lessons, it can be kind of lucrative. (laughs) It can make you a lot of money um, if you teach a lot. And especially she was teaching out of kind of more affluent neighborhood in the Bay Area and was a really great stepping stone for me to be able to teach music and then be able to perform and record my albums at the studio and which eventually led to me being able to transition to becoming an engineer and a producer as well. And I want to break that down a little bit. Where was the point at which you started to recognize that you were attracted to the other side of the glass? And was there a key moment or was did it just slowly over time start to creep into your mind? So there was definitely a key moment. It was around the time when I was making my record at Tiny Telephone and it was with John Vanderslice. He was producing and Jacob Winnick, he was engineering. I just found the studio to be so inspiring. I think Tiny Telephone was my first experience of, oh, the studio is this creative dreamland. You you can do anything. There are so many instruments. There's so much cool, like vintage outboard gear. There's a tape machine running. There's so much coffee. So <laughs> um, much we, coffee. Have, we have so much fun in the studio together. I, lo- I loved watching the way John and Jacob would interact with each other and how they work together and how they work with me. And I just found that whole process to be so inspiring. And I think my time as a musician there was so special that I was like, I wish I could be here every day. I wish I could be the one walking in here, making coffee for the band and setting up the drums and figuring out what cool sounds we should make for their record. And that was kind of a key moment for me and inspired me to try to learn more about recording and the technical side of things. And that around that time was when I went and I took classes at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco and took an intro to recording class there. And they've been so amazing my entire career, just so incredibly supportive. And John always loved hiring interns from Women's Audio Mission because he just felt like people who went to WAM always got such a well-rounded education and such a great baseline level of education on recording and engineering that they could definitely walk into Tiny and be able to help and like not break anything. That's a testament to Terry. Absolutely. Women's audio mission. 
Yes, Terry Winston is incredible. I learned so much from her, so much of my mannerisms in the studio and level of professionalism that I learned was from her. Like as an engineer, it's customer service. Treat the client with the utmost respect. And she would be like, open the door for them, Miriam, you know, like just when they would come from the control room or into the live room, just making sure to treat the people that you work with, with so much respect and having a high level of professionalism came from her. Definitely. She taught all of us that. So did you start up doing sessions and, and continue that process for some time? So after I did my intro to recording class, I applied to become an intern at WAM. And I also applied to intern at Tiny Telephone. So I was interning at both studios at the same time. And I'd say over the course of a year, I eventually was able to after a session was happening late at night at Tiny, I would invite my friends' bands and be like, hey guys, I like pretty much know how to use the studio, but it would be great to test it out. Do you guys want to come record? And so my friends would kind of take that as a chance to work out new songs. And I would just set up a bunch of mics and experiment and see like, okay, what am I doing? Okay, is this out of phase or is this not out of phase? I don't know. Let me see. It was really cool to just get so much hands-on experience both at Tiny and at Wham. At Wham, we were in the studio with artists all the time. I would assist sessions. And Terry was pretty cool with us being hands-on in the studio as well, helping to set up microphones and everything like that. And so after about a year or so, and I think this may have been something that Bo told me because my husband Bo was also working as a recording engineer at Tiny. Mm -hmm. And one thing that he told me from his experiences of working in recording studios and being like a staff engineer somewhere was if you stick around long enough, <laughs> eventually there will be a session that someone can't take. And then because you are available and you show that you are competent enough to run a session, you will be the one who's asked. And I just stuck around at both those studios. I was like, okay, I'm just going to wait interns would come and go throughout my time. And I was just like, no, I'm staying here. I'm going to keep assisting sessions. I'm going to keep doing late nights. And eventually there was a session where John was like, hey, this is a really simple session. It's probably a great first one for you to do. And I think you could totally nail it. So Hmm. why don't you just go for it? And, And same thing with Women's Audio Mission. They would throw me sessions as well. And and the combination of having both Tiny and Wham throw me some work early on really, really helped launch my career. That's great. And and just jumping in and doing it, as we both know, is the key. It's the best way to learn. Definitely. That's how you learn all of your mistakes <laughs> and also all of the cool things that you did. Like, oh, like this microphone sounds really cool in front of this specific kick drum. I feel like every time I'm in the studio, I have that experience of just learning new things and adding more tools to my belt. And I'm sure being an artist yourself really helped in working with people because I think you could probably identify and empathize with what it's like to be on the other side of the glass and how how to treat them and or how to inspire them, if you will. Have you always just worked at Tiny? And when we were originally talking about Tiny, where the inspiration initially took place, that was at Tiny in San Francisco, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, Tiny in San Francisco has closed and mm-hmm. Tiny Oakland remains in place. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you always worked at Tiny or have you worked at other studios? I work at all at any studio. Tiny is kind of like, I see it as my home base. I feel really familiar with the studio and I feel really connected to all of the instruments that are there and what's available to me. So I end up working there a lot and bringing a lot of bands there. But there are a lot of other studios that I've worked at. Just a week ago or so, I was working at Panoramic House in Stinson Beach, which I really love. A very different experience seeing the ocean while you <laughs> play music is really incredible. And also more of like a retreat studio experience. There's lodging there and you can stay there overnight. So it just, it adds this other level of connection to the project that you're working on. You all just have dinner together and you're with each other the whole time, which is really nice, especially when you're working with a band that you love. 
So Panoramic is one. And there's also new and improved recording in Oakland. I like working there a lot. I believe they renamed to Brothers Chinese Recording now. Really? They renamed it? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Ian and Jay renamed the studio. Yeah. And just for the audience, you know, everybody we're talking about here, John Vanderslice, Bo, your husband, as I mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, he's been on the show. John's been on the show. The Polici brothers have been on the show. I'll put links in the show notes for everybody to backtrack and check them out. But wow. Okay. So they renamed, but they're still there. That's good. To they're know. still there. Yeah. And I, I love working there. I love mixing there. It just sounds really good in their control room. And then, I mean, I work at Women's Audio Mission as well. I'll bring in sessions there or they'll send me work as well. Mm. And then outside of the Bay Area, I'll also will travel for work from time to time. Sometimes it's projects who want to create a little remote recording space in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, OK, let's try to figure it out. Or it's working at a studio in L.A. or in New York. So yeah. it really varies. But then also Bo and I have a studio in our house called Best House. And I'd say a lot of our mixing production work happens here at home, which is really wonderful as well. I think a lot of the work that we do here is mostly remote. We do a lot of mixing work, some pre-production work. And then of course, I record my songs here too. And so does Bo. Bo makes his music here. So having a home base for recording and making music is really amazing too. And then being able to leave the house and go to a studio is also really nice as well, just to like break it up a little. Oh yeah. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the business side of things. First off, do you have any other side gigs, you know, other than being an artist and other than being a producer and an engineer, are you doing any other side hustles to bring in income? No, these days it's just been producing, engineering, and then making music as Space Moth. And how do you find the survival aspect of it? I mean, Bay Area, my audience knows, you and I both know, it's quite expensive to live here. Is it tough to survive in your opinion? In the Bay Area, it is really tricky, for sure. It's very expensive to live here. And it's always been difficult trying to figure out how to make a living as a musician or as a producer in general. Like, that's that's already difficult. But then in the Bay Area, it just adds this whole other layer. On the other hand, there are a lot of musicians here and a lot of creative people here. And being here has connected me with so many so many great musicians and bands that I continue to work with through project after project. And so where I feel like I find myself and also Bo finds himself too, is that we feel sort of like we're doing well, we're able to pay our rent and we're able to make ends meet. We're not super rich and able to go on like big vacations, but like we're also okay with that. At the end of the day, making music and be able to work as an engineer and a producer gives us so much joy and mm -hmm. it makes both of us so happy to be working with so many different artists and to stay creative every single day working on different projects on our own projects that of course it would be amazing to like make a lot of money <laughs> living in the bay area we both feel the trade-off of being so happy every single day, loving our job is just, it exceeds wanting to have a big house in the Bay Area or, or any of the other things that come with having a more stable career. So it's really tricky and it's really difficult. But one of the things about becoming a musician for myself and choosing this path was kind of like knowing that that was going to be a part of it, that there would be times where things would be slow or maybe I'm not making as much and there'd be times where I'm super busy. And thankfully for myself and for Bo, we stay really busy working. And I'll also say that one of the things that continues to feed into our work and feeds into us being able to keep meeting new people and working on projects is making our own music. Because so many people will listen to our records and will be like, oh, I really love what you did on your record and I really love the sound of it and I want you to do that to my record. <laughs> and that's like the hugest compliment of them all is someone listening to my music and being like, hey, I really loved this and I want to do what you did. And I find that anytime I release new music or anytime Bo releases new music, we both just get more people reaching out to us to work with them, which is 
really, really awesome. So that's an interesting thing in itself is that you get to create these proof of concepts, if you will. I mean, it's another angle on the art that you create as as artists is that you get to not only take it where you want to take it musically, but sonically, you also both have that experience and education on what to do there. And so you get to create these things that not only are enjoyable to listen to, but other people listen to them and it's almost a calling card for your own production. So it serves multiple purposes and not everybody has that. I mean, I don't think I'm talented enough to create something as a songwriter that anybody would really want to hear. So my tendencies are, of course, I lean into the engineering and the recording side of things, even though I'm a drummer. So that's that's a great thing to have. How do you influence one another, not only musically, but engineering wise? Like, I'd love to be a fly in the wall for some of your audio conversations. <laughs> well, at home, for example, we've built two studios. One is the studio that I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the main studio. And then in the living room, we have kind of like a B studio. When we need to like do revisions or set up a mix or just kind of get something started or finished, it works really well for that. And so oftentimes we're both at home working on different projects at the same time. And I'll hear what Bo's working on. Bo will hear what I'm working on. We'll probably each come into the other room just like frustrated, like, oh my God, I cannot get this vocal to sound right. I don't know. I think I need new perspective. Can you come listen? And Bo will come listen and he'll be like, oh, you know what? Maybe like try to clean up the sibilance a little bit more. Try EQing it this way. Or maybe there's too much reverb and maybe it just needs to be adjusted like this or bring it down or bring it up and and will give me some kind of guidance listening from an outside perspective. And it's so helpful because it's just little tiny moves that will instantly make everything sound so much better. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I'll go out there and when something is sounding really good, I'll be like, wow, that sounds really good. And that alone is just a confidence boost. It makes you feel like, oh, I'm doing well. I should keep going. Because one of the things about working on music by yourself is that you can definitely get in your head a lot of like, is this, am I doing well? Is this sounding good? I don't know. I'm doing my best here, but is this okay? At least for myself, that's what I experienced. And so I feel like a level of encouragement can always help anyone if, if it's honest, of course. And when it's sounding weird, I won't say anything, but I'll wait for him to work it out. And then eventually we'll be like, yeah, that sounds really, really good. We listen to each other's work all the time and kind of give each other some advice if we ask for it. It's a little annoying for either of us to be like giving advice on something, of course, if nobody wants it yet. So, or if you're still in the middle of trying to work it out. I was going to say, I know, I know a lot of engineers who hide their gear purchases from their spouses. (laughs) So how does that go down in your household? Oh my God. So it's sort of like the opposite. For example, when one of us wants to buy, have a gear purchase, but we're sort of like, I don't know. I don't know if I should spend the money it's usually the other person being like, no, you should definitely get that thing. And it's so bad because like we just end up encouraging each other to like spend a bunch of money on gear that is cool, but we probably don't necessarily need right now. So that side of things, it can be bad. But also, for example, like we have a lot of synthesizers. We have enough synthesizers in our home and Sometimes when one of us wants something new, like for like, oh, I want a new synth, it'll be like, okay, cool. Which synth are you willing to give up in order to get that other synth? Because we have too many of them. We don't play all of these all the time. So yeah, it's it's good and bad. We try to we try to balance each other out too. I think Bo was wanting to purchase a synth the other day and I was like, I don't know if we need another one. Let's just Let's just wait a little bit or maybe like see if you have a friend who has one and like try it out. And then if you absolutely love it, then like go get it. Why not? The thing about new purchases for both of us is that it definitely always inspires us in some way and it and it will inspire us to create more music or we'll use it on a new project. So it always comes to use. But if I said that to everything, then I would have no money and I would be buying everything. So... (laughs) I have this image in my head of the two of you sitting in a room having a conversation where one of you says, I think I want to get a new compressor. And it's this <laughs> compressor. And the other one of you says, you totally should get that. We we need that. Let's go get that. Let's buy it right now. 
<laughs> that definitely sounds like us. And that has happened for sure. It absolutely has happened. Now, God forbid you get a divorce because and it's going to be like, <laughs> I want that. You want, you're going to get this, you know, like the splitting up of the <sighs> gear would be a nightmare. Oh my God. That's why we'll never get divorced. <laughs> you can't. You absolutely can't. We just can't. So is there any competition between you? Not at all. No. Okay. If Bo gets a really cool project, I'm not mad that I didn't get that project or vice versa. We're both excited for each other. We're just like, awesome. Like you're working on with this artist that you love. That's so cool. There's never any of that. It's more just like support and encouragement all around. Do you ever assist one another on sessions? Yes, we do. Definitely. Both of us do. It, sometimes there are sessions that are just a lot to set up and it's just hard for one person and I might not have an assistant available who can do it. And so I will ask Bo if he can just help me get started on the first day. And same thing, I'll help him out on the first day of a session here and there when it's kind of like a big overwhelming one. So that part is nice. There have been a lot of sessions that he and I have both worked on where we get to like meet other people in the projects that we're working on and become really close with them at the end too, which is really cool. Have you ever had sessions where one of you's gotten sick and said, oh, my, my wife or my husband will take over? <laughs> there was maybe one session where Bo had to leave town for a family emergency. And, and yeah, and I did take over for one of his sessions and they were totally cool with it. Because in a way, the two of us do kind of have similar sensibilities in the way that we work, the way that we organize things. We like the same things. The other day, I think I was assisting Bo and I set up the drum mics for the drum kit. And he went in there and he was like, whoa, this is really weird. This is exactly how I would set it up. <laughs> And that's like, I was like, wow, I didn't even, I didn't even realize that that's how you would set it up. I just sort of like set it up how I would set it up. So we do definitely, we'll, we'll help each other in that way, for sure. You hear that folks? You live together long enough, you start <laughs> setting the drum mics up the same way. <laughs> I'm sure that you both are quite tolerant and patient with one another when it comes to session days, because you both know Oh yeah, I'm only going to be here another hour. And then 4 hours passes by. Oh yeah, it's only I'm we're going to wrap up in 30 minutes. And then, you know, 2 hours passes by. It's like you two know the drill. You know how it's going to go and can plan accordingly and stay somewhat independent of one another, I assume. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think part of what makes our relationship work so well is the understanding of what it's like to work as an engineer and work in the studio and how the hours can be unpredictable. So yeah, I mean, there are, I'd say like a lot of days when we're working, if like Bo is in the studio and he's going to come home late, I probably will eat dinner without him and then he'll have dinner later. Or lately we've kind of been on a more like European dinner schedule and been eating at like 10 o'clock. Yeah. Which is the which is the new the new thing. So there's there's definitely so much understanding and support as well. Like, oh, it's cool. You're gonna be late. Like, do you need help? Do you want me to come over there and like help clean up? You know? Uh, yeah. And the two of us will definitely do that because we both know what it's like when you've had a session all day where you've been working really hard and then it's the end of the day and you have to clean up for the entire band. It's a lot of work for sure. And plus there's the the added advantage where either one of you can come home and do a session debrief with one another. How was your day? Well, I, you know, except the differences is that you each know exactly how it all works. Different from like, you know, when I come home and how was your session? You know, my wife doesn't really, she has a general idea of how things go, but not to the level of detail that you would with one another. Definitely. I mean, uh, a lot of the time we will we will definitely talk about like if if we had a frustrating session or a hard day and we'll kind of go through our day of, of what happened and maybe things that may have gone wrong or how we fixed it or how somebody was a little upset that day or you know anything like that and it's it's really nice to kind of have someone to talk about that with because I feel like we can give each other some perspective. For example, like if it was really difficult recording 
someone's vocals that day and they were not quite delivering as a singer, like I kind of understand what that feels like. And so I could tell Bo, oh, well, they were probably super in their head because like they or they were just like their voice was off today or there's just so much that we can kind of help each other with. Or also if we're kind of like upset about something, then can help each other kind of come off the ledge a little bit. Like, it's fine. It's not about you. This person's not upset at you. They're just like in their own head about their music, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I think you two should have your own podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah? But yeah. I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking like that could be a brilliant podcast. Two of you sitting talking about music and engineering and, uh, yeah. Anyways, I could, I could go. If only uh, there was more time in the world. <laughs> that's right. You need more time. Well, before we go, a couple things. I told you I wanted to touch it a little bit before we started on the financial end of things. And I don't want to keep roping Bo into this, but so I'll ask you, as far as your philosophy about money and survival, you've kind of touched on it a bit by talking about the happiness factor of, yeah, it's a little financially tough here and there, but overall, do you find that you're savers or spenders, or do you have like a thought process on what does happen when the money comes in? When the money comes in, we immediately set aside the amount that we would owe for taxes just right away. <laughs> and then we will also, everything just kind of gets funneled into like tiny little bank accounts <laughs> that we need to save for. Like this is for like our music gear that we tend to spend every year. So anytime we want to buy any piece of equipment, there's money in this account for us to buy that from. Or this is for us to go on vacation. Let's put some money aside every single month so that we can have some money to go on a trip. Or let's make sure we put this amount for putting into our savings account so we can have retirement (laughs) at some point. So there is definitely a process for just funneling money in different places just to make sure that we don't end up buying a new synthesizer when we really shouldn't. So <laughs> I know you have a, a debut album out under Space Moth. So let's talk a little bit about that before we before we sign off. Is this a record that you made at home or did you make it at other studios? It was a combination of at home and at different studios. So the majority of the record was made at home. And then I recorded at Tiny and at Hall of Justice in Seattle as well. Just for things like, for example, at Tiny, one of the instruments that I can't play are drums. I don't know how to play the drums. And so I would have a friend come to the studio and I'd record drums for a song or two. And then Hall of Justice, for example, I happened to be in town and uh, my friend Chris, he owns that studio. And he was like, well, the day's open today. You know, you want to just go in there. So going into Hall of Justice and playing around with whatever instruments that I don't normally have access to. The majority of it was recorded right here at home, mostly electronic instruments, guitars. I recorded all the vocals here in the studio, just hitting record on the keyboard and then running back to the microphone. <laughs> and for this record, is everything like run into Pro Tools or are you, are you doing it a different way than that? This record, everything was recorded in Pro Tools. I'll do some manipulation using tape machines, delays, tape loops, that kind of thing. But at the end, everything's recorded in Pro Tools. Is it safe to assume that you do all the mixing or does Bo mix it at all? For this record, I recorded and produced the record, and then Bo mixed the entire record. The mixing side with my own record is the point where I was like, okay, oh yeah, here you go. I cannot handle this anymore. I've listened to these songs 8,000 times, and Bo just has a really clear sense of my own sensibilities and what I like and my style. We, we share a lot of that. And... So he's just so great at being able to hear a song that I've written and put together and just being able to find like the perfect balance with it all. Mm. I I figured because doing your own music and then like being so close to it and then trying to mix it as well can sometimes be a troubling thing. So it seemed like the natural thing to have Bo step in and aid in that to get the objective point of view. Definitely. I think like if I were to, 
try to mix it myself. I would just spend way more time with it and then like hating it and then loving it and hating it again. And it's, it is really nice to get someone else's perspective for sure. Well, like I said, I'll include a link in the show notes to everything we've talked about. I want to thank you for making the time for me. I, I know that you got a lot going on and it's, it's great to chat with you. You too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really. This has been really nice. Yeah, it's great. Great to meet you. I, I, I'm surprised I haven't met you in the past. I know. Here we are both in the Bay Area, but you know. It's the way it goes. It's like I, I have friends who I love to death who I haven't seen in two months, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It can be hard meeting people. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Miriam Caduce here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to remind you to head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips to download the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio professional. That's a document that I put together from different pieces of interviews from uh, Eric Valentine, Andrew Shep, Steve Albini, and Jack Indino. It's a great document to learn some great tips. So be sure and download that. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. Of course, that includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, of course, at the top of the show with that lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.